Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. I don't know about you, but I was completely nuts when I was a teenager. I was a terrible person. My mother uh, likes to tell a story about the one time when I was 16 when she looked over at me during dinner and I was smiling and she realized that it was the first time she'd seen me smile uh, in years. So I definitely could have used some meditation, but I can't imagine that anybody would have been able to convince me to do it. However, Jess Morey, who's my guest this week, does just that. She's the executive director of a group called Inward Bound Mindfulness Education, or IBME, and they take kids ages 14 to 19 to residential retreat centers and out into the woods for hiking and meditation. She's got a super interesting backstory as well. And uh, I think this is uh, an episode that parents in particular are going to be really interested in. But even if you're not a parent, her story and what she does now is super interesting. So here we go. From ABC, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. You started meditating as a teenager. How did that happen? Uh, So I was 14. And my mom used to go to the Insight Meditation Society. In Barrie, Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. And it, by the way, that's where I go meditate, B-A-R-R-E, Massachusetts. Awesome place. If you're going to go on a retreat, um, that's the place to do it, or one of the best places to, to do it. Yeah, I definitely agree. So they, my mom would go there and do 10-day retreats every year when I was younger. Um, so this was like in the 80s. And were your dad, was your dad cool with that, or, or was it like annoying for him? Uh, my dad, my parents were divorced when I was two. Ah, uh, Okay. So, gotcha. Yeah. And so, who stayed with you when you did it? Then? I don't actually remember. That's a good. Question. You were running wild. <laughs> Some of the times, I think we were. Awesome. Yeah. So, age fourteen. What were you like as a fourteen-year-old? That that idea struck you as even remotely reasonable. My parents did all sorts of things that there was no way I would have done. Yeah. Well, so they started a teen meditation retreat right around then. The first uh-huh. ones happened, and I I was interested in it my since I was really little. Actually, I would beg my mom to take me with her to go meditate with her friends. And then I would sit for like two minutes, but um, and then read a book. So I don't. I just was kind of always interested in meditation. Were and you th- a good kid? Yeah, I was, I was probably a good kid. Yeah. I mean, on so- like, of course, as a teenager, I did drugs and parties and stuff. Rebelled a little bit, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. I mean, to to some degree. Um, but yeah, I was basically a good kid. But at the same time, she sent my brother, who was would probably have not been in the good kid category. <laughs> so, and so he, we, she had to really kind of encourage him strongly to go. But there, I mean, the atmosphere. There's just kind of an atmosphere of peace. So even he, at first, he, like we really didn't want to be there, but he settled in and loved it. But I, I mean, yes, there was an atmosphere of peace. Mm-hmm. But I mean, just I'm still a teenager in many ways. And when I'm there, I rebel against it. I feel like I'm at summer camp and the counselors get to go out at night and have fribbles at friendlies or whatever. And mm-hmm. I got to stay there and eat the vegetarian food and meditate and listen to Dharma talks and blah, blah, blah. I, I, you didn't have any of that? No, well, the thing is when you're – the teen retreats, especially the early days, like there were no rules. So we didn't we, – <laughs> like it wasn't silent kind oh, of ever. I mean okay. we would med- – when we were meditating in the hall, we basically were silent. But all the people that were running the teen retreats didn't have kids. So they kind of had no ideas how to – that you were supposed to make rules for teens. So we would like be – we'd be in each other's rooms till like 3 in the morning and running. Oh, so this is, a par- this is fun. Yeah. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, I mean, I t- I, this is sort of like I- insider information, but now it's totally different. This is uh, not the way you run it's your It's not retreats, the so. way that we run our retreats okay. now. At some point, someone figured out that teenagers needed a bedtime, mm-hmm. and the boys shouldn't go in the girls' rooms. It got a little bit more. We, we all kept the precepts. Like, we took the five mindfulness precepts, 
And we basically kept them. Basically promising not that you're to. not going to do a variety of things. Right. Misuse your sexuality, kill, lie, steal. Do drugs or alcohol. Do, right. No intoxicants. Yeah. Right. And we, and we basically kept those. I mean, I, I did. I think most people did. But then we were just, we'd like be, we'd be like downstairs in the walking meditation hall, like at two in the morning playing light as a feather, stiff as a board. <laughs> I don't even know what that is, but it sounds vaguely illicit. <laughs> it's like where you try to levitate people. Oh, okay. You know, gotcha. Just like running. It was awesome. Those were the good old days. And did you pra- Did you connect with the practice at that time, or was it all about light as a feather, stiff as a board? Yeah. Um, I, th- I, think, I think what I connected with, again, was the atmosphere and the kind of the, en- the connection and attention of the adults that were there was the biggest thing that I connected with when I was 14, 15. But then I started to get really into actually the practice, and I had experiences of you're just having that a mind state of peace, like a moment when you're kind of quiet, calm. Yeah, so I loved it. So that's probably when I was 16, 17. And then when I was, so when I was 17, I did a 10-day retreat at IMS, an adult retreat. Wow. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. That's mm-hmm. hard for adults. It was super hard. That was really hard. It was like, wait, what, where's the hacky sack? Yeah, and, but then you quadrupled <laughs> down. You graduated from high school yeah. and you went to Burma. Yeah. For three months? Uh, I was in Burma for most of the year. Yeah, where you lived in a monastery, right? For a yeah, a big portion of it. Mm-hmm. And I, I, you, you've said that when you called your father mm-hmm. to tell him you're doing this, he cried. Yeah, he did. Actually, my mom and I had gotten in a fight when I graduated, so I was living with my dad. So, oh, so you that, told him face to face. Yeah, I just said that, and which was great because my mom couldn't tell me I couldn't go, <laughs> and my dad couldn't tell me I couldn't go because he didn't really, he wasn't able to tell me to do things. So. He cried. So you, but you did, and you did it. And why did you want to do it? And how was it? So on that teen retreat, the, right after I graduated from high school, I went back to the teen retreat, and I don't, it literally was like sitting in a meditation. I just got the idea in my head: go to Burma. <laughs> I get all sorts of ideas in my head, but I don't act on them. I know it was like one of those really vivid, almost like a voice in my head. And plus, I was like, I had a teenage brain, yeah. so I yeah, was like. Yeah. No impulse control. Yeah. Well, I mean, of course, it took it was less than an impulse, but totally not looking at the risks. Yeah. I just was like, sure, I'll do that. And I think a number of the staff for the teen retreat had been recently had been to Burma or were going to Burma, so I had heard them saying they were going to do that. So I just decided that's what I want to do. All by yourself. Mm-hmm. And did you make arrangements in advance for it to be at a monastery? Yeah. I mean, so I asked the staff who were going to Burma. Just said, where you know, where should I go? Which I think at this point is so crazy. Nobody was like, uh, maybe you shouldn't do that. But um, so where did you go? I went to Saida Upandita's okay, so monastery. Just for people who don't know, Saida Upandita is a legendary meditation teacher, known to be pretty hardcore and strict. Although I understand could be very nice with some people, depending on what the chemistry was mm-hmm. there. But it's a really it's a hardcore style of teaching. Um, and it's very, very much in silence. Um, if, if I you mm-hmm. correct me where I go yeah. wrong here, and it's about achieving what's known as stream entry, which mm-hmm. is the um, the first stage of enlightenment, where you have an experience of nirvana. And he's he's like a field marshal getting getting the troops uh, mm-hmm. in that direction. And here you are, eighteen year old kid, and you show up there. What was it like? Um, he, he recently died, by the way. Yeah, right? mm-hmm. yeah. And well, so actually, the reason I went there was because he was the teacher who started teen retreats in the U.S. He was teaching at IMS, and he was doing a three-month, and he was like, how come there's no young people at these retreats? And so uh, he said, you guys should do teen retreats. So my teachers, Michelle McDonald and Steve Smith, said, sure, we'll try that. And so that's 
That's why I kind of, and then he came to them, so I knew I'd met him a few times. Oh, okay. The chemistry with me was very warm. I mean, it was kind of very fatherly. All he ever asked me about was like how did, how the food was, and like he would tell me to brush my hair. <laughs> he didn't. He didn't get super granular about your actual practice. No, I didn't actually interview with him. I interviewed with another teacher. And just, just, sorry, yeah. I'm going to interrupt okay. you again. Just so people, yeah. the way it, it works on retreat mm-hmm. is that you, you, there are teachers, and you, you have. A di- I think in in a Burmese uh, um, context is a daily interview. It's right? Almost daily, yeah. So you mm-hmm. go and and report your meditation experiences, and they kind of get under the hood with you. Yeah, I mean, so this is I don't my experience, and, and everything you're saying is totally right. On w- wake up was at three in the morning. And then you had breakfast at five, lunch at ten, and then you couldn't eat anything until the next day. You were supposed to only sleep four hours a night, and then all you were doing is meditating—totally silent, sit, walk, just meditate. Um, it was really tough. Also, like, you know, at first in the monastery, you go to the bathroom and it's like a hole in a bucket of water. And I remember being like, "I have no idea what to do with this," you know. So just culturally, it was really, and I got sticky rash, like heat rash, and they're biting ants and just physically I got food poisoning a few times so it was really intense and I would go into the minute and then but actually the thing is that my mind was was more intense than all of that like the physical pain was in some ways a relief because my mind was so in so much pain really Mm -hmm. about what or was it was it content or just the fact that your mind was seeing the rapidity of of what I realized and so that's where I had like my big uh, an initial really big insight um what was happening was that I was beating it was, I was beating myself up. Like what you kind of talk about so clearly, that every time I got lost in a thought, I would be beating myself up. I'd be like, you, you're, you can't do this. You're terrible. You're never going to get it. I still do that it. every time I get lost in a thought. Well. It sucks. <laughs> totally sucks. Yeah. But it sucks more when you don't know you're doing it. At least it. I can distract myself out here on, like by going to watch TV or, you know, kicking a mm-hmm. ball around my kid. You're in a retreat. It's just you, the mm-hmm. hole in the bathroom, and your mind. Yeah. It was brutal. It was so brutal. But so the thing is, actually, what's cool is that it's less painful when you know that that's what's happening. It's even more painful when you don't know that that's happening. And you didn't know it was happening. At first, I totally didn't. I mean, yeah, at all. So basically, I was, um, I would go into the, mo- I would go into the interviews with the teacher, and I would describe my experience, and the teacher would just be like, "Oh, great, good practice." Literally, that's like almost all he ever said was great practice. But you didn't say, oh, "Well, I'm kicking my own ass when I get I- uh, when I go get lost." Well, because at that point, I was just like, I don't, I was like, I'm having a really hard time. Like, I really thought I might go crazy. And um, so the woman who's sharing, who's like in this little kuti next to me, is actually a teacher now named Annie Nugent, who's Mm -hmm. at IMS. And she was like, she'd always be outside walking and smiling. She was always smiling, right? And I was like, what is she doing? We're doing something different because this is a hell realm for me. And you somehow seem to be having a good time. So uh, I think of, this was maybe four weeks in or something. Or a few, I ran over to her room and just was like, I, I can't do this anymore. And like, what are you doing that I'm not doing? So it kind of broke Did the she silence. Help you? Oh, amazingly. She's the one that pointed out that habit of mind of beating up, of like, mm-hmm. she helped me to sort of trace back the thought process that was happening and those sort of shadow thoughts that were actually kind of uh, controlling everything. Good. Say more about that. Because um, that that sounds like some NSA stuff there, but actually, <laughs> it's actually super. There's there's some there there. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of like those sort of those quiet, subtle thoughts that actually are in some ways they're quiet and subtle because there are beliefs 
Like yeah, they're, right, right, right. right? right. They're Very like, hard to see them. Totally. They're the water we're swimming in. Exactly. So they're, but they're sort of always quietly going on there in the background. And so, and it's interesting, if you start looking at your mind and watching thought, if you do like thought meditation practice, you start to see the kind of different loudness and nature of these different kinds of thoughts. But it's basically those really quiet thoughts that are so pervasive. You're no good at this. You're probably no good at anything. This is a waste of time. Mm -hmm. The rest of your life's going to suck. Right. Totally. You're never. And then what was at that point, I was getting all that Buddhist doctrine, which when you're on teen retreat, there's kind of none of that. So I literally didn't even know. I was like, what is this about the Buddha? How come everyone keeps talking about the Buddha? So, uh, you know, we hadn't talked about no self. We hadn't talked about dukkha, uh, suffering. We hadn't talked about uh, impermanence. Like those weren't pieces of my training before. And so I'm there and I, and I got it. I was like, yes, this is true. This is the way things are. I could really see the truth of it. And yet I was like, and I could see that, okay, this was a way out, but I couldn't do it. So then I just felt like stuck in the, this black vortex of hopelessness. Okay. There are a million things I need to follow up with you. Uh, but step back for a second because you said once you know you're beating yourself up, it's actually less painful. Yeah. I find that to be true, but I don't know if I can articulate why. I know. why. What, I, I think for me it was like it creates a gap. It creates a hole in the, like, in the movie or something. And then I could, because I would believe it, and then I would, actually, how I would start to notice it was happening, I couldn't hear the thoughts. I still couldn't, like, hear, you, you're terrible. You suck at this. You're never going to get I didn't actually kind of, wasn't conscious of that, but I would start to feel this, like, dread, depressed kind of feeling and be like, oh, it just happened. Right, 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 right. It just happened. And then I would kind of, there's some kind of opening or letting go that would happen in that moment of it just happened, then go back to the breath. So it would kind of break the, like, train so uh, let me give you an experience in my mm-hmm. own meditation see if we're talking about the same thing mm-hmm. so i struggle with a lot of doubt like am mm-hmm. i doing it right mm-hmm. uh doubt and it's it can make you fall asleep it can make you restless it can make you miserable you're just you know it's a terrible feeling of i'm, I'm getting lost in thought a million times i'm no good at this um am i using the wrong technique am i wasting my time if 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 I was in an MRI right now, what would it show? Am I doing this wrong? You know, it's just a whole spiral. Mm-hmm. And if I actually just say, that's doubt, it just like pops the balloon. Mm-hmm. So are we talking about the same yeah, thing? Yeah, exactly. And so that, I mean, that basically what I was experiencing was self-doubt, but with a flavor of like self-hatred. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, I f- mm-hmm. well, at least for me, the two are like yeah. so closely linked. Mm-hmm. So and also just seeing in the, and then there is the insight where I suddenly was like, because I could feel the feeling and I was like, this is. This happens to me a lot. Like, yeah. I know this feeling yeah, yeah. in my life. Right. So it was this real, I was like, whoa, is this that is what's the, happening? This is the background static of my yeah. entire life since mm-hmm. like sentience. And uh, mm. and I didn't notice it until now. Yeah, totally. I just was in, I would just get caught up in this like depressed kind of dread feeling and not know what was going on. So just, did that end or was that the whole way it was the whole time for you? Uh, okay, so that at that monastery, it was pretty painful the whole time. Whoa. How, how long were you there? <laughs> uh, I was there for about a month and a half. And then you monastery. went to another monastery. Then I went to another monastery. So then I was like, all right, I got to get out of here. Okay. Well, before, before you get out of there, you, you'll uh, hearken back to what you said before about how this is the first time you were dealing with the Buddhist doctrine of no self impermanence and dukkha. That's, mm-hmm. a, that, that's a lot. Yeah. Of, uh, so I don't yeah. know that you're going to be able to give okay. a, like an exegesis on that, yeah. but, but see sure. if you can. A little bit. Yeah. So just to say, like, when, on the teen meditation retreats and then I also think in a lot of retreats at IMS or just you know it's like feel your breath you kind of get a you get a 
taste of peace in your mind. You wish your, you do loving kindness, but they don't go into like Buddhist doctrine, right? And I also think in some ways it's not appropriate for adolescence. I do think there's sort of a, a stage of development when it might be appropriate. But basically, dukkha is the idea that there's suffering, that there's or stress or um, dissatisfaction in life. I mean, and you could go into an exegesis about this. I have so many opinions about it at this point. But when I heard it at that time, I heard basically life sucks and everything is painful. <laughs> That's not quite what the Buddha meant. <laughs> no, at all. But that was definitely how I interpreted it. And yeah. there's a way that I could say, yeah, that's kind of true. And maybe, and then like, so it was like this hopelessness. Is it never going to get better? Right. Basically, I think a, a slight maybe modifier in the correct yeah, direction please. would be like, life sucks if you're constantly grasping at things that won't last. Yeah, great. Totally. Yeah. And if you believe your thoughts. Yeah. Basically. And if you believe there's a you thinking yeah. the thoughts, right? That you have to protect yeah. and, you know, get... Yeah, get all these things for totally. But at that time, like not have I didn't. There's no nuance for, in the teaching, you know, because also it's like the teaching was Saito Pandita, like speaking behind a fan, and then it being translated. What speaking behind <laughs> a fan? This is what they do. They like I think it's because they're trying to say like it's not him speaking. It's the it's the Dharma coming yeah, through him. Yeah, that's a little creepy. Yeah, I mean, I that's mean like the least. It's like the least the, of the, the weird smallest problem. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, it's me, man. I don't yeah. mean like I, I I don't mean any disrespect yeah. towards Saito Pandit, who was a giant. Mm-hmm. Uh, so creepy might not have been the right, but it's a, it's a, it's a bit. It would mm-hmm. be off putting, I would imagine. Yeah, but again, I mean, you're in the middle of like it's just everything is right. at that point. It's like there's no there's no normal. So it's like, yeah, True. sure. So do right. we need to get into impermanence? So, and, yeah, and no I mean, self? just quickly, imp- I guess impermanence being you know everything changes, but then then the kind of end thing about impermanence that he would really emphasize was like so you're gonna die and everyone you know is gonna die <laughs> right. everyone you love is gonna die and he yeah. would say that a lot yeah you know yeah. so i'm this 18 year old and the one thing like kind of getting me through is i'd think about my family or my boyfriend at home or something and and then i was like oh no i shouldn't think about them because they're just gonna die you know so it's just i wasn't getting any nuance of the of the teaching and then the no self thing zero nuance no one was really this they're just like you don't exist so then i was like oh my god i'm a terrible like not only am i terrible like, the worst person and impermanent but i also don't exist that's a I'm, tough <laughs> cocktail it was just, yeah i mean it's like yeah no self actually is is actually better translated as not self mm-hmm. the t is actually super important mm-hmm. i found just personally that that uh that's just my opinion um is actually super interesting, not as nihilistic as one can take it to be. We don't have to get into it here because there's mm-hmm. a lot of other stuff we want to talk about. Mm-hmm. Maybe we'll get back to it. Yeah. But anyway, I so totally you leave after yeah. six weeks. Where do you yeah. go? Um, so I went to another monastery with Saida. Well, and this is kind of funny. So basically, Saida Upandita would always tell me to brush my hair because I had dreadlocks at the time. <laughs> <laughs> and so while I was there. You were like a fan of... of um, like, like fish. Yeah. Yeah, okay, I used to go gotcha. to fish shows Sweet. and stuff like that. <laughs> We would not have gotten along. <laughs> no. You and my husband would. I yeah. would not have No, I already get along yeah. with your husband. I only met exactly. him once. He's awesome. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, I was, I was like, you know, a hippie exploring that part of myself. And uh, so I had dreadlocks. So when I was there, I, like, did not take care of them at all. You know, you, dreadlocks for white people like, can, are really hard to take care of. Mm. So um, I wasn't taking care of them. They, like, became a big net. So I, I just chopped them off. And some of the nuns shaved my head. And so then I, I happened to be the, the head monk of this next monastery. I was going to Saida Ulakana, who's up in near, um, he's in the Sagain Hills. And he, um, anyway, he was like, oh, great, you're going to become a nun. And I was like, no, 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 I had these dreadlocks. I had to 
and he's like, no, 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 you'll become a nun. It's not okay for you to have a shaved head and not be a nun. So I went to this other monastery and became a nun, a Buddhist nun for- Wow, yeah. you were a nun. Yeah. How, how mm-hmm. long? Uh, four weeks. Okay, yeah, pretty short. short. None. Totally, not long. And how was that place? It was awesome. So a few things. Saidu Lakana, his whole thing is loving kindness practice, metta. He's kind of known as the loving kindness monk. And um, so he does a lot of his monks and nuns practice a lot of that. Can I just jump in and just yeah. play? We've talked about mm-hmm. it a lot on the show, but some people, maybe, just, maybe this is their first mm-hmm. episode. It's a practice where you systematically envision people uh, and uh, people you love, people who've been your benefactors, people who are your close friends, people who are neutral, people who you don't like, and then everybody, all all people and animals, and you send them good wishes. Mm-hmm. That's a rough description. Um, mm-hmm. So that 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 was the that was the scene at this place. Yep. So they were doing. There's a lot yeah. of meta going on mm-hmm. here, and so it's a it's a chiller atmosphere. It's a chiller, and yeah. also it was a retreat that my teacher Michelle. Oh, yeah. and Joseph. Joseph Goldstein, yeah, the guy who, for a bunch of probably bad reasons, agreed to be my teacher. Yeah, he's the best, mm-hmm. and he was there just practicing, or he was no, leading? he was teaching. Oh, great! So, the two, so they were teaching retreats specifically for Westerners. Oh, wow! At okay. this monastery, so it was right. Michelle and actually Steve, Michelle's partner, was supposed to come, but he couldn't get in to the country. So Joseph came. <clears throat> so it was the two of them teaching the retreat. So that also made it nice atmosphere. Yeah, I mean, jo- totally, nobody's yeah. nicer than Joseph. Right. And Michelle's like, she was kind of, she's like my Dharma mother. Wow. Like seeing her, I, as soon as I saw her, I just started sobbing. Oh, and I'm sure. She, she's like so loving and kind. I haven't met her, but she sounds mm-hmm. great. So yeah. you, and, but you, uh, you, so you did those four weeks and then you kept going. You stayed in Burma. So no, so then I, so I stayed for four weeks there and then I went to India. Oh, okay. Yeah. So I disrobed after that. But thinking I wanted to become a nun for my life, that was kind of like, this is what I want to do. Wow. Uh, so you went to India with that plan? That, yeah. And did you go to another monastery? I went to, so I, this was all planned out. My high school roommate was meeting me in India. So this was like in February or we're getting into March. So we, we went to the Dalai Lama gives teachings every March. In Dharamsala. In Dharamsala. So we went there. Uh, and and sat in on his teachings for a couple of weeks. Uh, we did a, a retreat, a Tibetan retreat, and then we kind of did. It was sort of like a spiritual quest. We like went to Bodh Gaya and Varanasi, and then went to Nepal and did a Tibetan retreat there. Wow! Mm-hmm. At the end of it, were you did you like enlightened? Were you enlightened? Can't you tell? <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> So you decided not to become a monk. In fact, if I recall, you went back, went to college, uh, even maybe grad school. Yeah, I did. And then you had a career in in clean energy? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Clean energy and climate finance. And then kind of chucked it all to to go run teen retreats. Yeah. Why? There are two things. You have to ask your parents if you can become a monk or nun for life. Oh. And I called my mom from India, and she was like, uh, no. (laughs) (laughs) I get a say in this? No. (laughs) That was a piece of it. And and then actually I saw this Tibetan monk who was like – supposedly a psychic Tibetan monk uh, at this monastery that I was practicing at. And I was like, hey, I want to become a nun for my life. This is what I want to do. And he was like, no, you should go home. Go home and, and work. He told me to go home and work. I was devastated at the time. But I just, I did. I just went home and went to college. and Yeah, I worked in clean energy. And then basically I was volunteering with teen retreats for a number of years. Uh, and we decided to make a nonprofit at some point so that we could do more of them around the country. That's IBME. Yeah, that's IBME. 
So we formed the nonprofit. That was only in 2010 that we made the nonprofit. Oh. And we hired an executive director, this young guy who's super healthy, charismatic young guy. And like just about two months after he started with us, he had he went into a coma and he needed a heart transplant. Whoa. So basically, I, like I, I was a founding board member and just kind of doing more to get keep the organization functioning so that we could still do some retreats. He did get a heart transplant and he's doing awesome. Oh, great. Marion has a baby. And nice. Yeah, he's doing really well. But basically, we needed someone to take over. And... It was, it was kind of like the Buddha story of the heavenly messengers is what happened. You're going to have to know. Yeah. I have to explain this or you want to do it? I'll, yeah, I'll ex- I guess I'll explain. And the whole story of the Buddha's enlightenment was that he uh, was this prince. He was, had a great life. And then he went out and he left. He was supposed to be protected in the palace. And he left the palace and he saw a sick person, an old person and a dying person, and then a monk. And basically, that's what encouraged him to start meditating to, or to start kind of on a spiritual quest. So I kind of had this idea that I would someday become, like, dedicate myself to meditation completely. But I also had this idea that I really, I wanted to um, teach from having been deeply embedded in the world. Like, I didn't want to, a lot of our teachers became teachers when they were, like, young, very young. Joseph. Yeah, right. When he was, like, he he started meditating like full time at twenty two or something like that. And Sharon and Michelle, yeah. like all all of that kind of a lot of that generation of teachers had done that. A lot of them didn't have kids and get married. And so I just had this like inclination that I wanted to be like a busy crazy person and meditate so that I could then teach crazy busy people about how to meditate. Like you should start teaching me. <laughs> Great. I mean, I think you have a good teacher. He's yeah. He's all right. But busy, crazy, I understand. Mm-hmm. So, sorry, you right. were in the middle of, I think, telling me about um, your decision to, to go to college and stay, and stay working and, and... Wait, right. actually, no, you were talking... I was going to... How I became... Yeah, the, head, the Heavenly head, Messengers, yeah. yes. So be, so that was my whole idea. At this point, I was like in my early... I was about 30. This young guy, Je- Jesse, who had... Um, Jesse Torrance, who had gotten... Had the heart transplant, was like 29, 30. I met my now husband, who had was recovering from lymphoma stage four cancer and had a bone marrow transplant and I mean had been really sick almost died and then my roommate who I lived with got leukemia wow. and started going through um, treatment and had to have a bone marrow transplant which was pretty crazy having that combination and then my brother got really sick and died not long after oh, that man. so basically it was just this and all of those people were in their like late 20s early 30s yeah. and it was just this moment of like wait I, I, I love meditation I love teen retreat. It's like the one time in my year when I don't question whether what I'm doing is worthwhile. Mm. There might not be a later. Basically, it was like there might not be a later. There might not be like when you're 60, you can do that. This so. was the right time to hear the impermanence argument yeah. as opposed to when you're 18. Exactly. So then it was like, right, carpet. It was more of a like take advantage of this time. Like there, if this is what you love and that's most meaningful to you, you should be doing it now. And so I quit my career and started running this organization. This show is brought to you by BetterHelp. I got to tell you, I feel so much better when I talk about my anxiety instead of keeping it bottled up. There's an expression that I first heard from the great researcher and also Zen practitioner Robert Waldinger, never worry alone. Our temptation many times is to keep it bottled up, but the data really show that the people who do the best in life, who live the longest and are the happiest, have strong relationships with people with whom they can talk about whatever's going on in their lives. And for me, therapy is part of that. 
If you're thinking of starting therapy, you might give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash happier today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash happier. You can count on T-Mobile to help keep you connected after investing billions to light up their network from big cities to small towns. T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, when you switch to T-Mobile, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus Verizon and AT&T. Visit your neighborhood store or T-Mobile.com to switch. Plan savings with T-Mobile. Third line free on essentials via monthly bill, credits versus comparable available plans. Plan features may vary. Credits stop if you cancel or change plans. Why did you like working? Why do you like working with teens so much? Because, I mean, a lot of sane adults like do their best to avoid teenagers mm-hmm. at all costs. Um, I'm actually not anti-teenager, although, you know, I was in a I gave a speech earlier today at a high school. And oh, okay. um, I mean, they're crazy. Mm-hmm. I love them. They're crazy, yeah. though. So what, why do you why do you you're, you actually live with a bunch of teenagers because your husband teaches at a school in suburban Massachusetts. And you guys live in one of the dorms. You can't get away from these people. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Um, yeah, I love working with teenagers, with adolescents. Uh, so I've recently been working now more also with college students and love that age group as well. I mean, I love how much energy they have. I love, they're so creative and energetic. So just it's just fun is one piece of it. The other piece is like, I, I like to say they have less like crust on their hearts than adults do. So they much more quickly put in the right atmosphere with the right conditions, like learning this practice with a bunch of people who are kind and seeing them in their best selves they go back to that best self pretty quickly and just like all of that natural human instinct to be generous to be compassionate to be caring in five days like they're transformed and i think that that happens a lot more quickly with young people that's amazing and your description Mm -hmm. of it is Mm -hmm. fantastic i'm just interpolating back to when Mm -hmm. i was uh, a kid and just really a knucklehead Mm -hmm. and not nice I just don't know what would have happened if I went on one of those. I don't think you would have been able to get me onto one of those yeah. retreats, but I wasn't in touch with a best self. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, a few things. First of all, I don't think that every teenager should meditate necessarily or come on teen retreat. I mean, I do think it would be cool if every teenager knew that there was this practice and they could kind of get a taste of it and then they could decide if it was helpful for them. But a retreat is intense. It's five. They meditate about five hours a day. And we definitely, they, they have to want to be there to come on the retreat, but we definitely have kids whose parents strongly encourage them to go. What is, t- t- tell me what, what you do on these retreats. So it's, it's basically a mix throughout the day. Of, we do sitting meditation, walking meditation, yoga, um, loving kindness every day, compassion practice. We do two hours of small group work, which is. Yeah, there's, is, is that hot seat exercise? Yeah. So what is a hot seat exercise? So a hot, a hot, I, I think of a hot seat as like a group meditation. You're in the hot seat right now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Part of it, but there would be like 10 other people staring at me and asking me questions. Gotcha. That would be the, the process. Right. But this is more torturous for you. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Totally. I mean, so part of a hot seat, the whole idea of it is that like, so you are the object of meditation. If you choose to be, you become the object of meditation. And so part of that, just like we're practicing with our breath, with our mind, 
you're cultivating that kind, curious attention, but on that person. So we really practice, like you keep your eyes on them, you mm-hmm. keep your attention. If you notice that your mind's wandering off, you bring it back. Yeah. I'm doing that with you. I'm not, I'm not, yeah. that was not sarcastic. Yeah, great. And then, and then it's this like, the it's weird qu- that I'm like the kind of guy who has to say that. <laughs> well, then it's, a, then the whole, the whole idea of it is like, you're just following your kind curiosity. So you're like, there's no um, agenda behind your questions. They're just like, what's kind of arising in this moment out of curiosity? And you follow that. Though they're not necessarily, often those get into questions that are pretty hot, like mm. profound. But it's not like you're trying to ask the hardest question. It's just like what's naturally arising. But teenagers can be mean. So that does, this doesn't, it doesn't never become sort of uh, nasty? Well, it's, it's really facilitated. So the adult staff in the group are facilitating it. So you have to raise your hand to ask a question. You ask your question. They answer. You have to say thank you. It's over. You, it's not a back and forth. Okay. So as a facilitator, we have a lot of control over Not prosecutorial. Yeah. We get to kind of shift direction. And, um, but we really rarely have to do that because the whole atmosphere that we create on the teen retreat is uh, so kind and accepting. Like, this is the like, foundation of what's happening. And that happens because of the staff, because of the, the way that we engage them. It's like people want to be authentic and kind. We all, we want to do. I mean, we're mean because we're trying to protect ourselves mm-hmm. in some way. Mm-hmm. So, if given the, a space where the, you feel safe to do that, people will do that. Tell me if you think this is a a, a mm-hmm. close enough analog. Mm-hmm. But when I was twelve and thirteen, all my friends were having bar mitzvahs and bat mitzvahs, and I was only half Jewish. But I like bull, kind of bullied my parents into like mm-hmm. sending me to Hebrew school because I wanted to go. I wanted a, a bar mitzvah for social mm-hmm. acceptance and maybe some cash and. Uh, Hebrew school had a whole different vibe when I was at mm-hmm. Hebrew school, uh, where it was like kind of like openly dopely uh, nerdy, where we're learning this other language, mm-hmm. where they went in the wrong direction, and we would sing these Hebrew folk songs, and um, it was like actually people dropped the mask in that mm-hmm. context. Close? Yeah, I think that is. I think that that's what the kids talk about. They totally drop the mask completely, and I mean they take the precepts to be kind to each other. And then we're facilitating this process. Like we're, there's a really high teen to staff ratio. So if we're seeing kind of behavior, language, like we're actively facilitating. How, what do you do? How do you, you talked about the need for rules. What do you do if kids run off and are, you know, hooking up in the woods or they're smoking weed or something like that? What, what's the punishment? They have to go home. Oh, okay. Yeah, we send them home. And the thing is, though, with all of this, we try not to, like, we really don't want to have a policing relationship with teens. It's like really a trust and deep respect and basically saying, like, we trust you to like, and if you respect the spaces is what we need to do. And we really talk about why. And we have the older teens who have been there before talk about why. I mean, and they say the most beautiful things about why, why it's important to be celibate on retreat or. What, what, what do they say? I mean, one of the biggest things is like what, that energy when you're attracted to someone, when you're crushing on someone is so distracting. And then it like, takes away so part of what we're doing is creating this inclusive community and when two people are doing that it kind of it naturally creates this exclusion and takes away from the kind of safety and connection of the whole group it's like one of the things they'll say just for themselves then then a lot of them will say like i feel safe here i don't feel like i have to like be protecting myself from kind of the sexual gaze i can just be friends with people and feel safe in that way that makes a lot of sense Mm -hmm. it really does Mm -hmm. um what else goes on? At the t- I, I kind of cut you off mm-hmm. when you were listing things to talk about the hot seat. But I, I, mm-hmm. There is some hiking on some of these. 
Yeah. So so the other thing that happens on most of our retreats is, or all, yeah, we always have a, an hour and a half workshop period in the afternoon, which is um, the, it's a whole range of things. The teens get to choose what they want to do, but those will be like mindful sports, uh, which Doug, my husband, always does arts, creative writing, but also discussions about like gender, sexuality, diversity. We do a lot of like social justice workshops, things like that. And then hiking or nature practices. So that's a that's our, our residential retreat. We basically rent a place like an IMS and then have a teen retreat there. When we go into the wilderness, so we, then we also have these a backpacking wilderness retreat, which is a little bit longer. And we go backpacks, go out in the wilderness and camp along the way. Um, so that the schedule is a little bit different, but we're meditating out in the wilderness. We have still have the silence at night. And then we do a, a longer solo period. So wow. there's two nights when they'll be alone. Wow. And we, you know, we encourage them to practice, to be, to use mindfulness in that setting. There's a funny, um, I don't know if you read Sam Harris's book, Waking Up. He talks about mm-hmm. how he was on some sort of teen retreat. I don't think it was a meditation retreat, but mm-hmm. some sort of wilderness experience when he was a kid and there was a... an alone part a solitary part of it and he said his letters home rivaled anything you would have seen from Gallipoli and uh, you know Shiloh just like complete self-pity and all this stuff because I don't think Mm -hmm. he was prepared the way Mm -hmm. you're preparing kids to be alone and and look at their mind Mm -hmm. Um, what kind of transformations if any do you see on these retreats I mean we see massive transformations I mean we've had kids I'll just think about this summer they, so they have to be alcohol and drug free and ideally we ask them to be alcohol and drug free before the, if they've been struggling with addiction but we'll have kids that, have, that come and it'll be their first time not smoking pot for years when they come on the retreat and just like their ability to first of all start to be with whatever the feelings are that they've been avoiding and then go through that process of like really getting close to what's actually happening in their experience and why they might like why they've been using pot or a drug to kind of avoid that and then what they might want it like that they don't want to do it again so that kind of shift for me some of the most powerful pieces are seeing the connections that happen across some pretty big difference between the kids like we have a real diversity of teenagers on our retreats it's a radical sliding scale so some kids pay nothing some you know come from really wealthy wealthy families so they're coming from completely different life experiences and these in the small groups in those hot seats, one of the big things they see is like, yeah, we have differences, but actually ultimately, you know, we experience life in a similar way on some level. So kids just seeing that across what they, you'd initially, and they'll say this all the time, like I had this idea about who you were, you know, you were a jock or you were a punk or whatever it is. And then by the end of the small group, it's like they're so connected and intimate because they've seen below. Uh, So that, feel is really meaningful for me when I see yeah. them connect across that. Yeah. And that scales to the rest of your life because every time we see somebody subconsciously, we're making up a story about them. Mm-hmm. You wrote a piece in, in Greater Good, which is a, a website associated affiliated with uh, the University of California, Berkeley, I believe. Yep. About, well, first of all, it showed that teenagers are really stressed these days and that um, apparently there was a study that, that shows that meditation appears to help. Do you think we ought to be Teaching every you know should every any parent on the line now uh, uh, who's listening right now should they be thinking about meditation for their kids and should we be doing it in public schools? Mm-hmm. What about concerns around sectarian uh, mm-hmm. influence, et cetera, et cetera? All this yeah. stuff about the the Buddha and mm-hmm. whatnot. 
I mean, so coming back, what that was referring to was we did research on our retreats. That was an article about the research that came out on our retreats. Oh, okay. That was just published. That was basically, you know, showing that even three months after the retreat, the teens had improvements in mood and a lot of it around their, like, life satisfaction and how they felt about themselves. But actually what was most touching for me about or important about that research was that the teens who had the biggest shift in self-compassion, who who developed more versus mindfulness. So there's a study of like, you could see how mindful they were and then how self-compassion they were. The self-compassion was much more correlated with their, uh, the benefits lasting mm. and with greater benefits later. Mm. And they, they also were asked like, are you doing loving kindness meditation or mindfulness? And the more loving kindness that they did, that had these like longer lasting benefits. So that was just interesting for me in terms of how we frame, like what we teach and mm. stuff like that. And it makes sense because all of us are dealing with the jerk in our heads, yeah. as you call it. Yeah, well, um, I use a different word. Yeah. Um, okay, so that's what that was about. But do I think, uh, should every parent listening to this get their kid to meditate? I think every parent listening to this should meditate themselves. Ah, brilliant. Yeah. And let that be the influence for their kids on some level. And then, I mean, this is like the quintessential challenge. I think if you have younger kids, you can definitely do practices. And there's a lot of great books out there that you can do. Just simple moments of peace, you know, quiet, feel your breath, feel your emotions. But also with younger kids, again, it's like they know this way better than we do. So it's more like just hang out with your kids and really hang out with them. It's probably the best thing to do. I can't see getting my one and a half year old to meditate. Yeah, I don't, probably not. I think with a one and a half year old, that's you meditating on him. That's the meditation. You mean just paying attention to him when I'm with him? Full, complete attention. And then maybe following his lead. Does chewing on his fat leg count as meditation? Because I do that a lot. (laughs) Could be. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I was like, I was actually just with the baby, with the father asking me this exact question last night. About the chewing on the leg? Uh, About how how to meditate with his baby. Gotcha, he was less screwed up than me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. but he was doing, you know. Yeah, he was cuddling. He was doing a lot of cuddling. It's cute. But uh, I also think, you know, the baby was like picking up the grass and like trying to eat everything the way yes. that they do. It's annoying. <laughs> but I was also like, but you could also like join them and get that fascinated in the grass and like, yeah. you know yeah. what I mean? That Absolutely. kind of process, Absolutely. which is in a way very much like mindfulness. Yeah. So I, I'm just making that up because I don't have kids and I don't actually know what it's like. No, and, but you can see the world afresh <laughs> just by just empathizing with the fact that they are doing that that very thing mm-hmm. yeah so that i think with the younger kids that we, that's what you can do i think maybe when they get to four or five you can start to do some simple like there's a really cute one where they put their teddy bear on, on their the belly, belly and yeah, breathe yeah. in but the, i think there that's actually happening even south of four or five right isn't richie davidson who's been on yeah. this podcast i think mm-hmm. he was doing some stuff with preschoolers really yeah well four cool. is obviously preschool yeah. but i think even lower than right. that right. i don't know don't yeah. quote me on that okay. i mean i don't i'm focused on teenagers right but so okay, so if I'm a parent with a teenager, yeah. what do I? And my and my teenager's yeah. a jerk, like I was. Mm-hmm. Um, what what do you do about it? Right. So as you know, if you're a parent of a teenager, you can't get them. If you tell them to meditate, is probably like the worst way to get them to meditate. Yes. So one of our the call that we get the most at at IBME is parents saying, "How do I get my kid to come on your retreat?" Mm. Uh, what do you say? Basically, we have videos. We've made a bunch of – so one of the ways to try to do it is have videos with teens talking about their experience. And yeah. teens, you know, they're normal kids. They're cool kids. Like, so we say you might direct them to watch this video or, uh, you know, just leave a flyer around. <laughs> Basically, we try to get our marketing to be teen-friendly gotcha. in that way. Not aimed at the parents. Yeah. 
exactly. It's not going to be a tough sell for parents, I would Right, argue. exactly. So then, and then what we find is like it's way, as the teen retreats will grow really organically because they bring teens will bring their friends mm. and siblings year after year. So it grows much more that way. I do think having mindfulness in schools is really great and effective. And, um, but again, I, I think it totally depends on who the person is. And this is, you know, we've mentioned my husband, but he's, I don't teach in schools. I'll go in and do presentations or day longs. Um, but he's full time teaching mindfulness to all the students of the school. And he was, he's also, he went to this high school and he's in the sports hall of fame at the high school. Wow. He was like a national champion lacrosse player. Wow. And, and he's also incredibly sweet. But basically, you know, he's like, he's a great ambassador for young people, you know, to, to play that role, to introduce this. So I think it does kind of, it does matter a little bit how you frame it. But mostly what you need to be is totally authentic with young people. If you're going to teach it. Yeah. But the school where your husband teaches is a mm-hmm. private school. Yeah. There have been some, you know, skirmishes in public schools where people mm-hmm. try to bring it in, including on Cape Cod, uh, mm-hmm. not far from you because mm-hmm. you're, you're in, uh, outside of Boston, um, where parents of faith are unhappy about this. Mm-hmm. Do you have a view? Yeah. Well, I mean, in that case, they dropped it. Yeah. Because the they, they, yeah. the lawsuit didn't go through because they could yeah. But other places they've gonna, succeeded. I think more with yoga. Yeah. Then, then really mind, mindfulness hasn't really gotten to that stage yet. In a way, the community was hoping it would in Cape Cod so that we could – it could the case could be you know taken and we could see what would happen. I think the way that it's so you definitely have to be careful about how it's taught. But we're not teaching any belief system. I think that's what it comes down to for me. It's and and actually we're often like you don't have, don't believe me. Like actually don't believe me. That's what the Buddha said. Mm-hmm. Right. So we take that all the time. It's just like don't believe like. This just explore for yourself and see if you find this to be interesting. And I honestly think if a teen comes on our teen retreat, they they really try it, and then they're like, I don't I don't like med- meditation. I'll be like, Great, awesome, don't do it. I really think that. But um, so taking that kind of a stance, and then we're not, you know, I pointed, I talked about dukkha, or we don't we don't do that, right? Suffering, suffering. Yeah, yeah. But in a way, you can just say like, it's just the reality. Like you were saying, it's common sense. Like we're just. It's maybe advanced common sense. Yeah. But in a way, when you point it out, you're like, uh, oh, yeah. there's stress. Yeah, yeah. People, things happen that we don't want to happen. Mm-hmm. And most of us have had some experience by the time we were a teenager that's painful, that we don't like. We also like pointing out what's going on in their minds, their feelings, being out of control or painful, like in giving them specific tools for managing that. It's common sense. So basically, I just don't think it's a, there's not a lot of belief or dogma to it. So uh, to me, it doesn't get. I don't think it um, gets into the space of religious. What's your daily practice now? How much are you doing what, what, and what? Right now I'm practicing between about an hour and two two hours a day. Nice. Mm-hmm. That's good. It's a lot. Yeah. My primary practice for the f- past few years, like the past year and a half, has been doing um, really somatic meditation. I mean body sensations? Yeah. Body sensations. But I would say body sensations from the inside. Okay. I don't understand. Like, okay, so right now... Like feeling your pancreas? Well, okay, right now, like feel your foot. If you feel your foot. Yeah. Are you feeling your foot as if you're looking down at your foot? I don't think so. No. You Like you feel like your awareness is inside of the foot? Yeah, I do. Great. So that's that's what I mean. So really being like deeply in imbe- having your awareness inside of the experience. Yeah. Right. I think I do. I don't know. Mm-hmm. But I, I could be completely overestimated. I mean, I am known to overestimate my abilities in lots of areas. Um, 
But I think so. Uh, but I see the difference. Mm-hmm. I see what you're yeah. saying. There's a difference between thinking about what your mm-hmm. hand feels like and just feeling it. Right. And even like sometimes can, it can be really connected to this kind of, it can almost be like a witnessing, you know, like we're looking down at our experience. Yeah. yeah. But this is kind of. Letting it well up. Be, yeah, exactly. But even that well up to what? As if there's some knower. Yeah, but that, so so I don't actually think of it as a well up. It's like just just being, having the awareness kind of embedded inside of the experience. That's, so that's a piece of it, but also just kind of doing that also I find deeply relaxing. So how does it actually work? You sit down, start feeling your foot, like what, what's the? Um, Okay, and so the other piece of what I'm doing too is is a a loving kindness practice, Mm -hmm. but a somatic. So not, no longer using the words, not doing the kind of visualization or mantra practice it's much more of a felt sense loving kindness practice so, so you call somebody to mind and and have just the felt sense of them yeah but then it's like the felt sense of wishing well uh, but but t- with a with a target um or is it just wishing well both i'll do both interesting yeah mm-hmm. and but how does the so the somatic stuff to use your term? How does that work? Um, so I've been practicing a lot with a teacher named Reggie Ray. Yeah, you've told me about him, mm-hmm. and um, he's got really amazing meditations. So, kind of what, what an hour long practice could look like is starting lying down, which is great. It's a good way to convince yourself to meditate, mm-hmm. and then actually doing a can lead to a nap though. Yeah, so you have to like be. Sometimes I'll even, I set my alarm and I do like 10 I have a 10 minute ding so gotcha. that then I have to sit up. So first 10 minutes lying down, like it's a body scan, but with the, um, w- with relaxing. So a lot of body scans are just like, just feel what's happening and you're not changing the experience. There is an attitude of trying to relax. I do that body. too. So with, when I do a body scan meditation, mm-hmm. I start, I say to myself, like if I start at the top of the head, Soften the head. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is the way Joseph teaches it, or often uh, teaches okay. it, and then mm-hmm. that you're actually softening your muscles, eat or whatever, each at each area of the body. And so actually, it is quite relaxing. But mm-hmm. you are also paying attention. So I feel like you get both. Right. Totally. Yeah. Which is great. I I haven't pra- I actually haven't practiced with Joseph that much. You can get a little buzzy. Yeah. Totally. Which there's is a, great. There's a little natural high there. Right. And maybe this is, sometimes more than a little. Oh, yeah. You can get kind of like all these like really pleasant sensations yeah, running through your body. For sure. Which is like a factor. It's one of the factors of awakening. It's one of the like. It's joy. Like joy. Yes. It's a piti, that yeah. energetic joy. P-I-T-I. It's an ancient Indian word. But yes, I, I agree. Although it's, I worry a little bit about, you know, I have a pretty addictive personality. I worry a little bit about like, you know, am I just trying to get a buzz? Do you? Is, do I have an you? addictive personality? Well, no, no, no. Like, what do you, what do you think? Do you? Do you feel, uh, like, addicted to that feeling? Uh, yeah, actually, it gets a little mm-hmm. old after yeah. a while, mm-hmm. which is interesting. Mm-hmm. I was so impressed with myself that I could even get there mm-hmm. because meditation was for so many years just such a death march that uh, that I could make it pleasant sometimes or that it could be pleasant. I, of course, personalized it by making by me making it pleasant, but I was sort of proud of myself. Mm-hmm. And then it was just kind of well, once the, even being proud of myself wore off, it was it was just the novelty of it, and then the, it felt good. I wanted more, but then after a while, I was like, "All right, uh, I get it." Yeah, isn't that interesting? Yeah. So I'm. I mean, yeah, it's people say that, but it doesn't seem. 
I don't feel like I get addicted to it in that same way. I mean, there are moments when it will start to shift and there'll be that feeling of like, oh, no. Yeah, 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 yeah. of course. But just noticing that, yeah. right? Just noticing the clinging to mm-hmm. the thing is, is important. Right. So, just, so, right. So it's like it's different than the kind of addictive behavior of like having another drink or something. But so basically I do that. Like I lie down. I deeply relax my body. I sit up. Um, if I'm doing just a not a loving kindness practice, I'm feeling my body sitting and just holding the awareness kind of in the center of my body. So feeling the posture. I've gotten a lot more into posture since working with Reggie. So a much straighter back, you know, really working with the elongated back. Um, And then lightly holding the breath, the attention on the breath of the low belly. Um, And then when you get lost, as you say, escorting your attention gently back to the to the posture. Yeah. So the first thing I'll do is come back to the posture and notice, because you'll notice when you do that, the body often tenses uh-huh. when we get lost, uh-huh. right? There's two things that happen. One, the body tenses when we get lost. The other thing that I've found really interesting is often we get lost because there's some sensation we don't want to feel. Yeah, 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 yeah. Dissociation. Yeah. Right. That's like almost always when I'm getting lost. There's something happening in my experience that I don't want to feel. And so then what I'll do is I'll come back Soft and relax, and look for what's going on. Like, yeah, what is it that I don't want to be with? Joseph talks about struggle as mm-hmm. a feedback. When you're struggling with something in your experience, d- go take a look at that. Mm-hmm. Right. And then it's like, oh wow, there's this like total clenching in my yeah. chest, or I'm pissed and I don't want to l- let it mm-hmm. be there. Right. And then it's like this experience of uh, then I what I try to do is soften around it, get close to it you know, develop some like willingness to be with it. And then just, you just notice how the mind will naturally like bounce off mm-hmm. because it doesn't want to be there. Um, so that's, that's basically that practice. Like um, when I do loving kindness practice, uh, I, I connect into the earth in a really deep way, which now things is just, like, a little reluctant to talk about right, it. Right, because I picture you with dreadlocks doing this. I know, exactly. <laughs> uh, but it's, what's interesting is, like, <laughs> just in this moment, right, uh, getting a sense, it's almost like you let your awareness drop down beneath you. And you, you, even with this building, you can think about the building being embedded foundation in the earth. And the way there's a way that that spreads out all around us. And when I do that, it just sort of somehow kind of chills my nervous system a little bit. You know, for all of my nihilistic mm-hmm. sarcasm, uh, mm-hmm. I agree with you. Mm-hmm. I see it, and mm-hmm. I agree. Yeah. So I don't know why, but it just does. <laughs> well, there's right. that term groundedness, right? right? I mean, yeah. it's not, yeah. you know, it's a real thing. Mm-hmm. So you were you were mildly uh, uh, amb- ambivalent when you walked in. I could, I could sense it on you when I mm-hmm. walked into the room and you were about doing this. Po- How are you feeling now? You feeling okay? Or are you still kind of a little bit freaking out? Um, a little bit freaking out. Really? Yeah. You, you, okay. you did very well. Okay. Um, what's the website? The website is uh, I B as in boy M E so inward bound mindfulness mm-hmm. education I B M E dot info. So there you have it. There's another edition of the Ten Percent Happier podcast. If you like it. Please make sure to subscribe, tell some friends about us, leave us a quick review. All of that really helps us keep the show going. I want to thank you for listening. I also want to thank the people who make this podcast possible internally here at ABC News. Lauren Efron, Josh Cohan, Sarah Amos, Andrew Kalb, Steve Jones, and the head of ABC News Digital, Dan Silver. 
If you want to suggest topics we should cover or guests we should bring on the show, the best way to do that is hit me up on Twitter, at Dan B. Harris. Uh, I love hearing from you, and I really do listen to the suggestions, so please keep them coming. And if you want to learn a little bit more about how to meditate, you can check out the 10% Happier app. We'll be back, as we are every Wednesday, with a brand new episode. Until then, take it easy. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Pre-order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital editions wherever you get your books. Once upon a beat, remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me DJ and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the new kids and family podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat.